You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident fanalist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. There is a lot to talk about, um, which I guess is a good thing. And if I was super smart, I would um, stick to like a generic PFF day and spread this stuff out. But I kind of want to just start chopping away at some of this because, I don't know, it's interesting stuff. So we'll see how it goes. I got up a little bit. I didn't get up early, but I'm, I'm getting started a little earlier than usual. So we can hopefully get through good amount of stuff. One of the things I'm having a hard time even keeping up with is making sure I don't leave something out. Um, the amount of holy moly, if you will, for this team is just crazy. You know, like the number ones and whatnot. PFF came out with their um, 2020 NFL All-Pro teams, and the amount of Packers on here <laughs> is kind of ridiculous. And so one of the things I was thinking about doing was kind of just actually building out a roster so that there was a visual component to this. And I actually have a pretty cool new thing. So I'm going to be making a YouTube video. I don't know if you watched my uh, David Bakhtiari video, but I'm going to utilize that graphic and uh, kind of give it sort of a Pro Bowl feel, I guess. But um, I mean, you it's not just because you look at it and say, okay, well, I mean, there's what, like three? It would be four-ish if, uh, if Bakhtiari wasn't hurt. It's not that many. Yes, it is. For example, Tennessee Titans running back Derrick Henry is the running back. Let's see if we can find any other Tennessee Titans on here. Nope. There is A.J. Brown on the second team, but not first team. Then, So, so we got Aaron Rodgers for the Packers. Then we got Derrick Henry, who's the only Titan. Then we get Devontae Adams again. Oh, wow. Two Packers already were just getting started. Second wide receiver is Stephon Diggs out of uh, Buffalo. Tight end, Travis Kelsey, Kansas City. Flex wide receiver, Kansas City wide receiver Tyreek Hill. So they got two there. They also have uh, defensive lineman Chris Jones, who can't really argue. I guess you could argue, but uh, definitely a dominant defensive lineman. Then you get Trent Williams for the 49ers, Ali Marpet, uh, Tampa Bay, then center Corey Lindsley, Green Bay Packers. Then guard Wyatt Teller, Browns. Right tackle Jack Conklin, Browns. I told you the Browns offensive line is very, very good. Aaron Donald for the Rams. Chris Jones, Chiefs, T.J. Watt, Steelers, Khalil Mack, Bears, linebackers Bobby Wagner, Seattle, Fred Warner, 49ers. So there's been two 49ers, team that's not even in the playoff. Cornerback, Xavier Howard, cornerback Jair Alexander, Green Bay Packers. Uh, Flex defensive player Bryce Callahan, so slot corner basically. Denver Broncos, not in the playoffs. Safety, Jesse Bates, Bengals, not in the playoffs. Safety, Adrian Amos, Green Bay Packers. So... That's with losing left tackle David Bakhtiari. We have the number one quarterback, wide receiver, center, cornerback, and safety. Top two, I guess. But they actually came out with their final... Their fi- I think this came out before week 17. After last week's dominant performance by Jair Alexander, he's actually the number one corner in football. He hasn't been number one for a while because his grades were kind of good, not great. So Xavier Howard was the top guy. 
with that last dominant performance, he ends the season as the number one corner in football. So we officially have number one quarterback, number one wide receiver, number one center, number one tackle, number one corner. Adrian Amos ended the season as the number two safety in football. Remember how at the beginning of the season, I was disappointed? Not just with Amos, who clearly had regressed for the first half of the season, but Darnell Savage, who I predicted would be a breakout player. And it looked like I had massive egg on my face because he had regressed from his rookie year, which was devastating. And it was really upsetting because we had brought in this this guy from Minnesota who I said, man, if he can have some kind of an impact like he had in Minnesota, because that guy's a freak. Everybody that went to Minnesota was a great safety. Didn't matter who it was. They, they, if you go to Minnesota, you're going to be a great safety. Coach I'm referring to is Jerry Gray, by the way, defensive backs coach. I believe that's what he was with Minnesota, too. But it was, it was upsetting because it's like, man, it just, and, and granted, things take time, you know, and, and maybe there's sort of some new things that Jerry Gray is trying to teach him, which is sort of a tear down and rebuild kind of a situation, which, um, you know, whatever. But it was just a little bit disappointing to see guys that you know are better than this that are, just aren't playing. I mean, same thing we're saying with Zadarius and Kenny and all that stuff, right? Guys are regressing and they're just not picking up that steam. Here's a, a fun little little tidbit for you. One of the many tidbits that I found uh, this one I'm not going to forget about. Several others will just be lost in the Twitterverse forever. I looked at um, Jair and Adrian Amos to, or not Jair, uh, Savage and Amos, because I wanted to see the difference between the start of the season and the end of the season. Because obviously there's a gap. I knew they started off slow. I didn't really know, um, and I didn't want to be biased like a lot of people and say, since week uh, nine and a half, you know, nonsense like that, or, or since week six for Amos and week nine for Savage. No, halfway, right at the halfway mark. Eight games and eight games. By the way, if you follow me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy, or if you are a uh, follower of the Cheese and Packers Facebook page, you already saw this graphic. But in the first half of the season, the first eight games of the season, Adrian Amos was ranked as the 22nd best safety in football. So barely a number one safety. Darnell Savage was 79th. He was just flat out bad. And again, through eight weeks of the season, when you've got a white hot offense, you're looking at the saying this defense isn't going to be good enough, right? It's just not. You got Jair and kind of nothing after that. Do you have any idea? Obviously, I'm talking to the people that don't know right now what the rank of Darnell Savage and Adrian Amos are in the second half of the season, last eight weeks. Adrian Amos is the number one safety in football. Probably not too surprising because he ended number two. Darnell Savage is the number two safety in football. In the last eight weeks of the season, we have the number one and number two safeties in football, as well as the number one corner, quarterback, wide receiver, center. And we have like three top ten running backs right now, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, In the last eight weeks, I think I looked it up, Dylan isn't officially ranked when you use the filters because he hasn't carried it enough, although he has graded out higher than, than most, probably. Maybe higher than all three. I'm not sure. Let me just look so I stop sounding like a moron. So, yeah, with the filters on, Aaron Jones is the number five overall running back. Jamal Williams is number nine, and I'm filtering it by running grade. In, in other words, their ability to run the football. Their grades, and I'm only doing this because I'm going to remove the filter and I want to see where they compare to A.J. Dillon. Um, Aaron Jones is an 83.6 at number 5. Jamal is an 81.6 at number 9. So 81 and 83, roughly. A.J. Dillon, with no filter at all, is the number 6 overall with an 86.1. 
ahead of Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. So you got to finagle a little bit for all three of them to be top ten. But if we give A.J. Dillon the benefit of the doubt that we don't give any of these other guys that don't have enough snaps, then we have three top ten guys. That one I'm being a little iffy on. But I just, again, I, you know, not a bad situation that the Packers are in. And um, it's not perfect. By any stretch of the imagination, it's not perfect. But I will say, and by the way, Rashawn is now, after two elite games, getting himself up there. Let's take a look at that. Rashawn has basically caught up to Zadarius Smith as far as overall grade. They are now ranked 19th and 21st in the last eight weeks of the season. Still not overall super great. But again, Rashawn especially um, was down at the very bottom. I mean, bottom, bottom, bottom of the barrel. And two absolutely dominant elite performances, especially against the run, have launched him from one of the, literally one of the worst edge rushers in football to number 21 overall. Zedarius, again, number 19 overall. And if you look at the, uh, the pressure, again, Rashawn is a freak. His grades aren't that great. 30 pressures on 187 attempts. 16%. That's that's almost where Zadarius was last year when he was one of the greatest pass rushers, had had one of the greatest pass rush seasons of, of anybody. Those are the kind of numbers Rashawn Gary is putting up. And by the way, his elite grades are almost entirely because of his run defense. So, you know, I, the, the biggest thing for me and Rashawn, and I know I'm all over the place. I told you there's so many things, so I'm kind of scattered. I'm just going to let myself run with this stuff here. When I'm done talking about stuff, I'm just done with it. The biggest question for me and Rashawn is, okay, is it two weeks and done, because he's basically had four good weeks all year, which is not good. I mean, he's very flighty. I mean, his stats, as far as a pass rusher, are fine. The grades are not. The only way to reconcile that is to sit down and watch, and I just don't have time right now. I do have a plan in mind to start putting some stuff together, but I'm, I'm actually way behind right now, so I'm just trying to keep my head above water at the moment. I'm supposed to drop my draft video yesterday, but I keep messing around with stuff. My hard drive is freaking out, so I went over to Dropbox, but Dropbox doesn't work as well. Because you can't just use that as a hard drive, apparently. It's it's a whole thing. Anyways, I'm just wondering, because the the last the other two good games were in a group, right? There were two good games back-to-back. Granted, they weren't elite. They were like in the 70s. But the, the question for me is, is this going to be another fluky two-game stretch and then he regresses again? Or did he just take a Darnell Savage turn? Because if Rashawn Gary just took a Darnell Savage turn, it's officially over. The rest of the NFL needs to quit. Because again, he's at 16% which is close enough to undoable territory that it that it's somewhat fluky, but at the same time, if you're very, very, very good, it's not entirely unsustainable. Really, really, really good pass rushers can pull off 15, 16-ish percent pressure rates on a fairly regular basis. Remember, T.J. Watt was drafted at the back of the first round. It doesn't have to just be number one overall picks like, like the Bosa's or like the Khalil Mack's of the world, right? Top five guys doesn't have to just be that. So that's going to be, I mean, honestly, that is one of the bigger things to keep an eye on because pass rush is the one big thing that's going to take this thing to the next level. We already have, I think, the best DB. I mean, it's it's not a question. The Packers have the best defensive back group in football. It's not close. The, the Chiefs do not. The Buccaneers absolutely do not. The Saints absolutely do not. It's not close. And even though they still refuse to play him, Kamal Martin is still the 16th best linebacker in football. I have to remove the filter because he hasn't played enough snaps, but even removing the filter, even keeping guys like B.J. Bello, who've played 13 snaps, keeping in guys like Nate Hall, who played 14, uh, Ben Burkirvan, 10, uh, Tay Davis, seven snaps. Even if you keep these guys in, that shouldn't even be in here. 
I mean, here, let's let's do a minimum of 100 snaps. How about that? With guys that have 100 snaps on the season, Kamal Martin is the 11th best linebacker in football. And I know, listen, a lot of guys like, nobody really likes Kamal Martin except guys that have PFF. <laughs> That's about it. Because, I mean, if you watch the game, everybody's talking about everybody else. People are excited about Christian Kirksey because he finally got, you know, a sack and he's made a couple impact plays. Second half of the season, he's ranked 47th, which is an improvement, no question. Chris Barnes is ranked 68th. He's had, like, two good games all year, but people love Chris Barnes. And the Packers seem to love Chris Barnes. They won't take him off the field. The point is, the linebackers are playing better. That's that's really not disputable. And I think one of the benefits that we have is, although we don't really have an elite player, despite the fact that Kamal seems to be somewhat filling that role, maybe it's his complete lack of coverage ability, I don't know. The Packers seem to have done a good job. The... Again, I'm all over the place. I think the thing with Petten is he's just kind of found his groove. He found out how to utilize his guys. So he's got some guys that have stepped up to a point, and, and it may, it's not even that he doesn't know what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And I kind of talked about this before where when you look at Buffalo and all these other places where he was successful, he just had the right guys. And if you look at a lot of these guys, they went somewhere else and they failed. He's got a certain way of playing football. And I think if you look at especially the linebackers, these are guys, if they go somewhere else, it's not going to work. But he found a way to make it work, right? You've got when you've got guys like Jair and Savage and Amos, it, it gives you some opportunities to do some other things. And he found just the perfect mesh, right? He's got he's got his guys, and he found a way to make all this work, and it works really well. I had uh, somebody reach out on Twitter, Dami23. Um, he pointed out something, and I haven't verified these numbers, but I, I trust what he's saying. Um, feel free to independently verify yourselves, but he made the point that the defense has been actually quite a bit more impressive than the offense, and based on these numbers, it's really not even close. And yes, the offense is impressive. Here's what he says. The Packers the last five weeks, 32 points per game on offense, 15.8 points per game on defense. Those are the numbers I came up with as well if you remove that kick return. Now, what I had mentioned is, when I remember when I said I looked at the Bears, and I said they haven't actually been that impressive when you compare what they've done compared to what those teams have allowed in the last several weeks. It's, it's basically on par. He did the same thing here, looking at our offense and defense. Thank you for doing my job for me, Dami. He goes on to say, offense has been awesome, but I would have to say the defense has been even more impressive. Offense averaged 32 points per game against teams who conceded, on average, 29 points per game in the last five weeks, which is fine. They're, they're three points ahead. He says, the defense, however, has conceded 15.8 points per game against teams that averaged 25 points per game over the last five weeks. Look, I mean, if you look at the last two times the Packers won a Super Bowl, and I'm, I'm not trying to get your hopes up here. Maybe I am a little bit, but I'm, I'm not trying to because I don't want to make a loss that much more painful. What was the factor in the Packers winning? Despite having good offenses every single year, the reason the Packers failed was because of an, a defense that wasn't a good complement. We can say whatever we want to say about last year. It wasn't like this. The fact of the matter is, in, in 2010... The Packers' defense was better than the offense. In uh, 97, it was basically tied because the offense and defense were both number one in the NFL. Point is, though, the defense was dominant, and I think that's required. I think last year the defense had elite characteristics, but I don't think it was necessarily dominant. For example, uh, Zadarius was a freak. Jair was good, but he was nowhere near what he is now. King was not very good. Savage was mediocre. Amos was good, not great. Kenny Clark was very good, but not elite. I mean, probably better than he is now, but still. 
And then overall, they still had some major flaws in terms of some things just weren't working, right? And, and I think we all feel it. That's the big... I don't need to over-explain it because you can feel what I'm saying, which is great because I'm super ineloquent when it comes to this stuff. Trying to explain what exactly I'm talking... You can feel it's a well-oiled machine. Last year, it did not feel that way, offense or defense. This year, it's just, it's just clicking. They've got it. I mean, halfway through the season, we were ready to move on from Mike Pettin, and all of a sudden, it is just, it's just working. Even when it feels like it's not working, you look at the end result and go, oh my goodness, we gave up how many points? That's ridiculous. I feel like we gave up about 30. I don't know how, that's got to be wrong. I watched the game. I'm positive we gave up at least 26. I'm positive. I saw so many first downs. <laughs> that has to at least account for 26 points. Nope, 16, 14, 16. But, I mean, the biggest thing is going to have to be consistency. If you look at the final stretch for the Packers' defense, it was actually pretty dominant last year on the points front. Now, I think the biggest difference is they never had a Tennessee Titans dropped in the middle of them. But starting in Week 13, the points they allowed 13, 15, 13, 10, and 20. That's a pretty similar stretch. And, in fact, they did something kind of similar against Seattle. The problem is San Francisco was a juggernaut. And so the defense came crashing down, giving up 37 points. The offense also failed miserably, only putting up 20. And so that's where, again, the well-oiled machine comes in. And, and we got to test that theory. Are we sure that they're ready? It feels like they're ready. It feels like they're much more efficient. They're much more willing and able to adapt, to overcome, to not just beat up on teams like the Lions, you know, the Bears, the, you know, Giants. Again, even that Giants game, I remember being upset about it, or, or Washington, 20-15. to 15. Everybody was super upset about that because it just didn't feel like it was working. And I, and I think even the bigger thing was the fact that the offense wasn't clicking. The defense was. The offense wasn't. You look at the difference in offense compared to defense. The defense was great, but the offense, 20-21, 23-23. What are they averaging? 21.5 points a game? So, again, it's, it's, it's clicking. And the only thing that's required now is consistency. Um, the other big bonus is going to be the fact that we have home field advantage. And I think if, if I were just listening to a podcast and somebody said, hey, we got home field advantage, I'd probably sit there and go, yeah, I think that's a little overblown. I think I've said that on this podcast before. I think the home field advantage thing is a little bit overblown. I did a little homework. Um, again, I mentioned Mr. Pessimist forces me to do some homework sometimes by saying ridiculous things. He didn't really say anything ridiculous, but he just he says things that are just outlandish and he doesn't really think. I think he just wants to get under my skin sometimes. And the way that I'm wired, I have to go look it up because I want to get solid numbers. It's not even that I disagree. It's like, well, let's put some numbers to this and see if it's correct or if you're just spouting off stuff for the sake of just saying random things. So I looked into it. Um, he had mentioned that Drew Brees can't... He, he's he's more... I think he was saying he's more scared of the Bears than Drew Brees because Drew Brees can't play in cold weather. Again, that's not an offensive negative thing. It's just like, eh, let's just verify that. So I looked into it. Again, if you were on Twitter, you saw this. Otherwise, um, I was completely stunned to see the results of this. I have the ability, I have the powers, to look up games based on the weather. So I said, all right, let's look at below freezing. I don't know what the temperature is going to be, but I'm assuming there's a good chance it'll be below 32 degrees. It's going to have to start getting cold because it's already 30 right now in Green Bay at, at 4 o'clock in the morning, which means it's going to be over that. So we got a couple weeks to start getting cold around here. And uh, just looking at the future forecast, it does look like it's going to do that. We've got um, basically 30s. For, if you don't get out of my face with your stupid... Fine, I'm using a different site. I'm not playing with your stupid ad blocker nonsense. 
weather.com. You know how many weather sites there are I need to play your stupid games? Thank you, AccuWeather, a much better better website that isn't all spammy and full of garbage. So in Green Bay, just so we're clear on this, um, it's going to be mid-30s for a while, dropping to about 30-ish for the next week maybe. The expectation is maybe like high 20s, so it's going to be pretty close. And, and I know it seems, seems like it doesn't matter, but I think it does. I've definitely noticed having living, having lived here, when you drop below 30, I mean, think about how much of your body is water. I'm kind of making this up, but th- there's a certain point right around 30 degrees where the weather starts to hurt. There's a big difference between like, ooh, it's chilly out here, and like, dude, this, this kind of hurts a little bit, especially when you're not acclimated to it. You come up here out of nowhere, and, and the weather isn't just cold, it actually hurts your body. And then you got to go play football, and you got guys that just play physical football like the Packers have been. I thought the, the Bears are a physical football team. I think the Packers were more physical. They, they killed people. I thought Adrian Amos killed Darnell Mooney. I didn't know if he was ever going to be able to go home. Roquan Smith was limping off. He, he didn't look good. I mean, it was, it was a crazy physical game, and I, I, I love that part about the Packers. And I think that's required if you're going to be a cold-weather team. you got to get big, you got to get strong, you got to get mean, and they are. Kevin King is mean. Jair is mean. Amos is mean. These edge rushers, they seem like nice guys. They're going to hurt some people. Kamal Martin is going to put somebody in a hospital one of these days. A.J. Dillon, if he ever gets back on the field, is, is going to seriously hurt some people. Jamal hurts people regularly. But um, anyways, that's, that's my, uh, my thought having lived here is, is right around 30 degrees is when it goes from, geez, it's cold out here to ouch, that I need to put my hands in my pockets because my fingers are hurting right now. Anyways, here's what I found. In the Drew Brees era, first of all, I was shocked to see how few times the uh, Saints have played cold weather. Four times in Drew Brees' career, and I, I didn't verify he actually played in these games, but in the time in which he played quarterback, four times the Saints have played in, in cold weather below 32 degrees, which I guess makes sense because it's probably going to have to be December, January football away, so they'd have to be going somewhere else. The Saints are 0-4, meaning Drew Brees has never won a game in temperatures below 32 degrees. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I know Tom Brady is a different animal. He did play uh, in a lot of cold weather, but just in general. Because, you know, the team is a team that is in Florida. So the players live in Florida, and it it just has a different effect, right? Tom Brady had played a lot in New England. But, um, I mean, again, having lived in cold weather, you have to reacclimate every time. It's not like when winter rolls around in 2020 this year, it was like, oh, I don't even mind because I'm used to this. No, I'm not. I'm used to 80 degrees. Because it's been hot in the summer. So there is a reacclimation period, right? When, when the cold weather first starts coming, 50 degrees is freezing. Today, if it was 50 degrees, I'd be wearing t-shirt and shorts. That's just, I mean, that's, that's a thing that happened. So anyways, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, in their team history, going back to like the 70s, are 0-14. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, in their team history, have never won a game when the temperatures are below 32 degrees. The L.A. Rams, since moving to L.A., are 1-1. One one. Not a big history there. They did beat the Denver Broncos by three points. So that's it. Seattle in the Russell Wilson era, which seems surprising. I mean, he's played in outside. He's played in a lot of postseason games. I seem to remember him playing cold-weather games, but maybe that's in my mind. 0-2. Again, it's not just cold weather. Below 32 degrees, he's 0-2. So combined, we have the Saints 0-4, the Bucks 0-14, the Rams are 1-1, the Seattle Seahawks are 0-2, and I know I'm bouncing all over the place between different things, but if we just go ahead and add all this up, they are 1-21. and 
The only victory being the Rams beating the Broncos by three points. 1-21. and 21. The Green Bay Packers, in the Aaron Rodgers era, in that same temperature range, below 32 degrees, are 19-5-1. No question, there is a massive advantage for the Packers. Interestingly enough, there's also a massive advantage for the Bears. For a franchise that doesn't win very much, and I didn't, I didn't really keep track of it, they win more games than they lose. I was actually shocked because I, I looked at it just for fun, thinking, well... It's probably not a disadvantage, but they're still going to lose a bunch of games. They don't. They win more than they lose. They want to play cold-weather football. Maybe not against the Packers, but if they were playing at home against New Orleans, that would be a factor. If it's 25 degrees in Chicago and New Orleans was coming there, I don't know that that the Saints win. So I'm not saying I want New Orleans to come to Green Bay necessarily because New Orleans is clearly a better team, but um, there is at least a, a hint of rationale behind the thought that if we want to use the cold weather as an advantage, it doesn't work against Chicago. It works against pretty much every other team, though. I don't think Washington quite as much, because they're obviously an outdoor team. They deal with some cold. I looked at their record. It wasn't all that different. I mean, again, they lose more often than they win, but it wasn't as stark as a lot of these teams that just don't deal with it. Even Seattle, I know it gets cold, but, you know, again, he has played two games. I don't think any of them were in Seattle. Which I mean, it's it's 44 degrees there, so I, I maybe it just doesn't just doesn't get to that range. It doesn't quite dip down that far. I know they're right on the water, so it stays a little bit more temperate, and it rains a lot. So again, even Seattle is not. I mean, they're used to cold, but not this kind of cold. Although 44 and rainy is pretty miserable. So yeah, I I, I absolute 100%. The cold weather is an advantage, and it's an even bigger advantage now. Because remember, all those other teams, the cold weather is more of a discomfort for them that the Packers can deal with because they're used to it. This is another level of advantage. And I think we saw how big of an advantage it can be when Tennessee came here. And I don't I don't know. I guess I should look up what the weather was. It's 28 degrees. 28 degrees, 15 mile an hour winds. Look, the Packers are good, but um, I can't help but think 40 to 14 has a little bit to do with 28 degrees. Tennessee ain't Green Bay. I know you guys get a chill down there, but, you know, again, in January, we're talking 40s. I'm telling you, you get down into the 20s, it's a whole different animal. There is a there, there's a bigger difference between 25 and 35 than there is between 35 and 45, right? When the ground is frozen, when your skin hurts, when you can see your breath, it goes from cold to frigid. And Tennessee dropped below that line to play in Green Bay at 28 degrees, and it hurt. So if I'm you... Um, we need to be hoping and praying that the weather is quite cold because, again, that is a giant advantage. So be excited about this bye week. It's not a guarantee, but um, it's definitely a thing. And, again, I, I think that it's even more of an advantage this year being a physical team in the cold as opposed to just being a team that's used to it but being more of, let's call it a finesse team. Aaron Rodgers knows how to throw. We can kind of handle it. Your body doesn't just quite shut down. You're not moving real slow. Not only can they handle it, they're going to make you hurt real bad. They're going to make this more miserable than you could have ever imagined. I think it's somewhat imperative that the first play of the game is either Jamal or A.J. Dillon. Just because I want that first play to be a helmet smacking somebody right in the bicep when it's 22 degrees and them saying, I'm not doing this. Take me out of the game. Right? He just drops to the ground, grabs his knee, and is like, oh, my ACL snapped. It's just, it's gone. It dissolved, I think. I can't walk. Bring me the stretcher. Oh, bring me the stretcher. Take me home. 
need to see my mama. Show me my mom before I die. I won't be here long. <laughs> it's definitely a thing. Anyways, this seems like a good a spot as any to uh, take a break. I've got lots and lots of shout-outs today. Several generous people. And I, I was thinking, I get so many messages from people saying, how can I help you? Obviously, me just saying the words over the podcast is, is not helpful to a lot of people. So I'm going to do something that I thought would be not great because it seems not great, but it's going to help a lot of people. I'm going to put links in the Facebook group. I'm sure some of you will be turned off by that, but whatever. It's it's for the people that are just like, I don't want to type stuff in. Just give me a link to click. I'm going to give you a link to click. But here we go. First of all, thank you to Rick Beck, Rich Beck, for uh, bumping up your pledge. I really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. That is an option, by the way, that I've mentioned. If you've already given on Patreon, you could always bump it up. Just, just you know, throwing out options. I don't know. Again, talk to your accountant, your tax preparer, see what you can do, move some monies, sell a property. I don't know. Also want to give a shout-out to Ronald for jumping in on Patreon. Thank you so much for uh, for doing that. And then I had several people jump on Venmo. It's funny, all I did was mention that somebody's payment didn't go through, and everyone's like, oh, I got you. Thank you so much to Josh Hooley. He says, go, Pack, go. Shout-out to Eric Knudsen, who I believe was the one that initially gave it. I'm not positive, but says, thank you for the work you put in on the podcast. Thank you, sir, very, very much for your uh, contribution. Daniel Sumnick says, thanks for the hard work. I'm an electrician and listen every day at work. Go Pack Go, 14-time world champions has a nice ring to it. I absolutely agree. I'm actually kind of upset that we're falling behind in that race. And everybody, whenever they show, like, how many Super Bowls, it's the Steelers and the Patriots and meh. We got to kind of move up the ladder a little bit here. And then a uh, big shout-out to Bill Herrick, also jumped in on Venmo, says, great podcast. I got to get my little graphic going. I was I had sort of a countdown to when I can quit, um, but I hadn't really gotten very much recently, so I kind of gave up on the graphic. But this is a big flurry, so we got to get that going again. Finally, big shout out to Zach Moss. I think I'm saying his last name right. I got a message from a friend of mine, Pastor Dre, over at uh, Legacy Church. That's Legacy Christian Church in Menominee Falls for anybody interested. But you guys know him as Pastor Dre. He's Uncle Mike to me. Not actually related, but... Um, I did some work for his brother for a long time, worked landscaping, and I uh, worked with basically the whole family. And even to this day, the Drahan family feels like family to me. Just very, very good people. Funny little story. First time I ever talked to Mike, I thought he was calling me on my phone to beat the living daylights out of, out of me. Because <laughs> I went to his brother's wedding, and that was the first time I met Mike. And Will, who was my boss, and Mike, who we're talking about, both have daughters who were at the wedding. I'm a nice guy. I was fine to just hang out and do my own thing. Certain people were insistent that I dance with Mike's daughter. I kept saying no, I didn't want to. But I finally gave in. I was like, all right, fine. Little little, little dance, whatever. So I get a phone call the next day that I didn't recognize, and they said, hey, this is Mike. And I thought, well, this is it. I heard about guys from the South. I don't know exactly how it ends, but I know it involves a shotgun. And I know that I need to pack up probably should head north he's from georgia probably doesn't know a lot about canada nor do i but you know i'll figure it out he's a bass fisherman he doesn't know about walleye fishing he'll he won't find me that wasn't actually what happened but you know funny little anecdote for you but again good people and i appreciate you listening anyways why don't we take a break we'll be right back
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. All right, we should probably head on over to Pro Football Focus now because um, otherwise we're just not going to have time to get to it. I kind of talked a little bit about it in terms of some of the overalls that are exciting, the running backs and all that stuff. Obviously the number one and two safeties in football the second half of the season. But let's look specifically at the Chicago Bears game and see what PFF had to say about it. Um, Some of the things you'll probably agree with, some of you'll disagree with. It doesn't matter. That's how this works. Again, if you want to go do your own grades, you can send them to me and I will maybe tell people. I don't know. Probably not. (laughs) But if you're bored, you can do it anyways. Uh, We'll start with the offense because overall um, it was, let's just say there were basically three guys with good grades. And they were just good. No 80s, no 90s, nothing like that. Um, and again, I know people will be upset by that if, when you look at Aaron Rodgers did a good job. Devontae did a good job. Again, there, there are several variables. Um, one thing that comes to mind, I know on a lot of these passes, it sticks out in my mind. The exact placement wasn't exactly on point. You might remember that Devontae catch that was out of this world in which he had to turn all the way around and reach backward to catch the pass. That's clearly not an on-target pass. So just just little thing. And again, he did not have a bad grade. He had a good grade in this game. It's just you feel like you have to explain why he wasn't elite, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, if we want to nitpick, that's cool. It doesn't matter. He's still the top quarterback in football because 76s for Aaron Rodgers are like bad games. But um, other guys that graded out well, Devontae Adams, Robert Tunyon, and MVS. He did have the drop, but again, uh, we're talking 46, or excuse me, 22, that's Aaron Rodgers, 22 snaps. Um, Obviously, he got graded poorly on that one drop, but um, that's one play. There's 21 others that happened, including a big touchdown pass. And and based on the fact that they kept going to him, it it probably tells me that he was just winning, right? We're going to stick with uh, MVS because he's just beating these guys. Um, and, and again, that kind of comes down to matchups. Sometimes you're going to have MBS, sometimes you're going to have Tunyon, sometimes you're going to have different guys because depending on matchup and depending on how they decide to play the Packers, um, certain guys are, are matchups on certain days. And it seems to me, based on the grades and based on the fact that there was a couple shots taken that should have been two touchdowns for about 7,500 yards, um, that MBS was just in very optimal situations and was winning in those situations. Um, a couple other guys were close to being in the good grade. Nobody had a really, really bad grade. Everybody was 50s, 60s, and 70s. Technically, there was one guy in the 80s. That's Tavon Austin, which I know is going to upset a lot of people, but just understand the offensive grade and the special teams grade are separated. His fumble has absolutely nothing to do with his offensive grade. I didn't include him in there because he only has five total snaps, and his good grade comes as a receiver. He only had two snaps as a receiver, so... Um, it's not really worth talking about, although it's not a bad thing. 
because he obviously was doing he he won whatever he was doing on those two snaps to to get that high of a grade on only two opportunities. But uh, offensive line, um, I mean, the good news about it is it was decent, but we know it could be better. Lucas Patrick, Elton Jenkins, and Rick Wagner all had good pass blocking grades. The only one of the three to give up a single hurry was Elton Jenkins. Gave up one pressure on the entire day, and it was a hurry. Uh, Mercedes Lewis was fine. Corey Lindsley actually had a 50 overall grade. He's been elite all season. He's had two games all year in which he did not grade out very well as a pass blocker. It was against the Bears and the Bears. So uh, I don't know if it's Akeem Hicks or what it is, but um, they just they, they work Corey Lindsley pretty well. The great news about that, probably not going to happen the rest of the season. We've already played Tampa. He didn't have a bad grade. We've already played the Saints. He did not have a bad grade. Again, only the Bears and the Bears. And he actually gave up two hits in this game, bringing his total pressures to four, meaning he doubled the amount of pressures he gave up on the season in this one game. Um, I'm hoping it's not an impact of him coming back from injury and that it's just the fact that the Bears' defensive line is a good defensive line, and we'll leave it at that. Um, After that, the lowest-graded offensive lineman was Billy Turner on the left side. He had a 43 overall pass-blocking grade, gave up two hits in a hurry. Three pressures was the most on the day. Um, then the two really terrible pass-blocking grades went to Dominique Daphne. Only one time he was in pass-blocking, so it kind of doesn't count. The other was Aaron Jones. He only had two snaps in pass-blocking, so again, you kind of want to give him a pass. But when you have two snaps and you're giving up a hurry on one of them, that's obviously not great. In terms of run-blocking, um, Mercedes Lewis had the highest grade. He's really coming on strong. I I'd said we kind of, we kind of overextend or overhype him in terms of a blocker, but he's had a pretty good stretch recently. Um, after that is Robert Tunyon, so good to see the tight ends getting in the mix. Unfortunately, only one other guy was high 60s, and that's Corey Lindsley. Everybody else was kind of low on the list. In fact, Devontae Adams was the next highest, then MVS, then Aaron Jones, um, and again, these guys are, are not doing it very often. The next offensive lineman on the list is Lucas Patrick. He had a 59 overall grade, so below average. Then Rick Wagner with a 57 below average. Billy Turner with a 56.7, so 57-ish. Elton Jenkins was dead last at about 49. So nothing super abysmal, but it just it wasn't fantastic. And again, it's, it's all relatively good news because we know that they can be better. I mean, it's scary because you wonder about with, with Bakhtiari being out, does that reshuffling mean they're going to have to relearn some stuff and maybe it just doesn't work as optimally? Or can we just say it was the Bears... And, um, you know, granted, Tampa Bay isn't much easier to run against. They're, they're one of the best run defense. I don't know if they still are. I haven't looked it up in terms of recent history, but I know they were the hardest team to run against. So that's still a thing. It's still a concern. But in general, I mean, the fact that this is one of the, the worst efforts by the offensive line is somewhat encouraging to me because I expect them to be better, especially Corey Lindsley in the middle. He's a, he's a dominant pass blocker and run blocker. He was bad at both in this game. If he just steps up what he's doing, everything gets better. Um, Aaron Rodgers had somewhat of a unique game in so far as um, I mentioned his grade was decent, not super elite. The the exciting part about it is that he graded out just about as well under pressure as he did with no pressure. We saw how good of a job he did escaping pressure and finding guys after the fact. With no pressure, he was 14 of 17, 134 yards, 7.9 average, two touchdowns, no interceptions. 74 overall grade, 138.7 passer rating when targeted, adjusted completion percentage 82 point, or 88.2. Under pressure, he was 5 of 7 for uh, 106 yards, which is 15.1 yard average, two touchdowns, no interceptions, one sack. I don't know if it was his fault or what. When you go over to the sack page, it doesn't show up, so I don't know exactly how that works. 
Maybe it was nobody's fault. I don't know. I don't know. 153.3 passer rating, um, 71.4 adjusted completion percentage. So he was great under pressure, which is great because he's been kind of bad under pressure. And so the fear is if we get a team that dials up pressure, we're in trouble because Rodgers really is quite bad. And again, most quarterbacks are, but he's probably a little bit further in the bad category, especially when you factor in how good he is when he's not under pressure. The fall from no pressure to pressure is probably about as big as any quarterback, if not quite a bit bigger. So to see basically the exact same grade with no pressure and pressure is just, again, another level of greatness. Looking at the running backs, we saw the uh, sort of general grades in terms of yards and all that kind of stuff. Um, Only three first downs by running backs, which isn't great. Two by Aaron Jones, one by Jamal Williams. Um, Only two carries over 10 yards, one for Jamal, one for Aaron Jones. Yards after contact wasn't fantastic. Bears are a good tackling team. 2.64 yards after contact for Jones, uh, two for Jamal Williams. Longest carry for each, Aaron Jones was 10 yards, Jamal was 14 yards. Only one avoided tackle in the game. One. Aaron Jones. A.J. AJ Dillon had nine last week. And here, he, See, I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. You know how many avoided tackles Aaron Jones had last week? One. <laughs> same, same as this week. A.J. Dillon had nine. Please play the guy. Well, I, he, he was out there. He didn't do anything. Listen, his first two carries against Tennessee went nowhere. He had one carry that went for like two yards. So what, we pull him? Give him, give him 15 opportunities. He's going to make the most of 10 of them. I just, again, I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to go ahead and be that guy because I just feel like he's a different kind of guy. I got to look this up now. One second. Aaron Jones, he did have eight avoided tackles against Philly, so I was going to say, but again, his best game in 2020 was eight. Jamal has 11 on the season. A.J. Dillon had nine in his one outing. All right, we got to do the math on this real quick. I'm, I'm running out of time, but now I'm, I'm curious because we're sitting here. So Aaron Jones has an avoided tackle about 19% of the time. That feels high. I don't know. I've never done this before, so I don't know what a good metric is, but that feels high. Roughly one in five carries he has an avoided tackle. I'm doing this live, so I might sound stupid if if it's not that interesting. Um, Jamal Williams has an avoided tackle about 9% of the time, so that's a massive drop-off compared to Aaron Jones. A.J. Dillon right now is at 37%. More than once every three carries he has an avoided tackle. (sighs) that's on the season. That's not just the one game. I mean, the only other game in which he had more than five carries was Detroit. He had seven carries, four avoided tackles. That's over 50%. Or how about this stat? Carolina, one attempt, two avoided tackles. (laughs) 200% of his carries. How about that for a stat? I, I, you know, again, I I trust Matt LaFleur and I understand A.J. Dillon's at the point where he's not ready. And he made a comment about that with Jace as well, right? Part of the issue with Jace is that he's hurt. Part of it is that he's just not ready. And listen, I've been telling you this for a long time, and the injuries are not helping. He's not only raw in terms of him not being in the NFL very long. He played college football for like a year. He's way behind everybody. That's why I said Josiah DeGuara is going to come in and start right away. He played five years of college football, five years, in a system similar to what Matt LaFleur runs. He can come in and play. I mean, granted, it's not an NFL offense, but He's he's very close to to a full understanding. Jace Sternberger is like he he's played high school. That's that's about it. Super raw. He doesn't know anything, and then he's injured all the time, so he doesn't have a lot of time to play. So you know th- there are these learning curves out there. And again, we're we're in 
this is NFL football. This is playoff football. We don't really have time to get, you know, a, a college football player. I mean, maybe if he played for like Alabama or Michigan or some kind of a, a big program, maybe. But there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of stuff involved in Matt LaFleur's offense um, that guys just have to know and A.J. Dillon doesn't know it. I, and I get that. But we, we tried it out against Tennessee and it worked quite well. I'm just, I just, I don't know. I would just, I'd like to see him a little bit. That's all I'm saying. Every time we see him is a good result, and then we never see him again. This is this is very close to what we saw with Mike McCarthy all the time. Like, oh man, that guy's so good. Where did he? Where is he? Where's he going? Where did he? Where did he go? Oh, you're gonna put Demarius Randall back on the field. That's weird. Because I remember when he sucked, and that guy came out who was an undrafted free agent. And he played really well, and then you pulled him. Remember how he they broke up that touchdown? Maybe maybe he keeps playing. I don't know. Maybe I'm just stupid. I don't know. That's how it feels right now, but that's fine. I'll be patient. I mean, it's a cold weather game, and he's going to be smashing into people at 250 flipping pounds, and also he's faster than every other running back that we have and seems to have decent hands and and all that stuff, but uh, let's move on. Looking at receiving, again, we went over the general stat. Aaron Jones was actually the highest-graded receiver in terms of their receiving grades. He did only have 43 yards, but it was a 10.8-yard average. 53 yards after the catch. He only had 43 yards total. <laughs> Meaning on average, he's catch, catching his passes behind the line of scrimmage and turning them into positive gains. He had 10.8 yards per reception, 13.3 yards per reception after the catch. Longest was 17 yards. He converted two first downs and actually had three avoided tackles as a receiver. And, and again, I think this is that dynamic that you get for why Matt LaFleur says, I'm putting him out instead of A.J. Dillon. It's all the extra stuff. Jamal, no offense, I don't I don't see it. I don't know one thing that he does that A.J. Dillon can't do. I love Jamal. Fantastic player, great human being. I don't get it. I mean, if he's primarily out there blocking and running routes, all right, cool. If he's just going to grab the ball and smash ahead for two yards, I would like Dillon to take that. Just a thought. All right, defense, quickly, because this is where the fun stuff begins. There were some terrible... Unfortunately, Kamal Martin was one of the terrible. This is the uh, first time he's had a bad game in a long time. PFF was not a big fan, largely because he had zero tackles, one assist, and one miss. That ratio is not good. So his tackling grade was a 26, which obviously has a terrible effect on his overall grade. Um, that's about it, though, statistically for him. Otherwise, Dean Lowry, big shocker, was the second lowest with a 46 overall grade. And then Priston Smith with a 47 overall grade. So, again, there's always those couple things. And I'm not trying to be super nitpicky, but it's like, hey, how about A.J. Dillon instead of Jamal? How about Snacks Harrison instead of Dean Lowry? How about Rashawn instead of Preston Smith? How long have we been saying this? Granted, Snacks wasn't the highest graded guy in the universe, but he's better than Dean Lowry. Rashawn Gary maybe was the highest graded guy in the universe. I don't know. I'm just saying. But, again, I... I, I what have I been saying all year for, for both the offensive or the defensive coordinator, the offensive coordinator, the head coach, they care about your understanding of the system and that we just got to get used to that as fan. Rashawn doesn't know it as well as Preston. Snacks doesn't know it as well as Dean. Dylan doesn't know it as well as Jamal. And so here we sit. That's really all it comes down to. And that's just the way that it works. I mean, Daphne has a better understanding than Jace, which isn't great. I mean, at some point you get to the point where it's like, all right, Jace, you, you got to be able to figure some stuff out here. I mean, you're in year two, you're hurt, fine, read a book, so that when you come back from injury, you have an understanding of what's going on, right? Just saying. But that is a, that is a major thing with this team. Um, you just hope that when 
push comes to shove, especially with this extra bye week, let's get those players. Let's try our hardest to make sure Rashawn and Snacks Harrison and um, A.J. Dillon, these guys are up to speed entirely, as close to entirely as we can possibly get because we need them on the field more, man. It's silly to me that Preston Smith, who was one of the lowest graded guys on the team, had 62 snaps. Rashawn Gary was the second highest graded guy on the team, second week in a row grading out as elite, had 30. Less than half the amount of opportunities. They each had one pressure, which isn't great, and we'll get to pressure. But Preston had one one uh, pressure on 32 attempts. Rashawn had one pressure on 17 attempts. Zadarius had one pressure on 41 attempts. Rashawn is just consistently better than everybody. He's getting more pressures than everybody than Zadarius and Preston. When you look on a snap-to-snap basis, it's not even close. Rashawn is blowing everybody out of the water. And now he has become an elite run defender. This is not even a question in my mind. And again, I understand. Listen, if you want to avoid a San Francisco situation, you need guys that know what they're doing. And you would almost, apparently, this is the message that we're being given by the team, you would rather have a guy do his job poorly than not know how to do his job. That's the message. And, and look, I get it. I don't want another 49ers game either. The defense has been clicking. I'm going to trust you, but fine. Do everything in your power to get Rashawn up to speed where he knows what he's doing because I would love it for Rashawn to start getting 64 opportunities. Anyways, those are the only three guys that graded out poorly. Um, otherwise, there's kind of below average, average, high average type stuff. There's a ton of those, but seven guys were good or better, starting from the lowest. Tyler Lancaster, 24 snaps, split evenly, 12 and 12. He had a good game, obviously primarily as a run defender. That's his whole thing. Tyler Lancaster, big body guy. He's sort of he's sort of our Snacks Harrison right now, right? He is sort of the big the big body run defender guy. Ideally, Snacks Harrison comes in. He's not a better Dean Lowry. He's a better uh, uh, Tyler Lancaster. Um, sixth highest graded player was Kevin King. I mentioned there was a lot of controversy about him. Um, some definitely some good, definitely some bad. A lot of the bad, though, it's hard to put on him, as I mentioned yesterday. Um, I Overall, I wasn't super impressed, but a lot of people were. It's, it's funny because some people watched that game and said he was terrible. Some people watched the game and said he was great. I was kind of 50-50. Right? It's one of those games where half of the time, it, it sort of reminded me of that, what was it, the Raven Green game, where half of the snaps you're looking at it going, this guy is a dog in a good way. And then half of the snaps you look and go, dude, they're just kind of picking on you at this point. It's kind of getting embarrassing. Very similar type of game. But again, PFF looked at his 74 total snaps and said, no, he had a good day. Um, He was targeted 12 times. He gave up nine of those for 76 yards. That's an 8.4 average. Uh, Longest reception he gave up was 23 yards. Zero touchdowns, zero interceptions, but two pass breakups, 91 overall passer rating when targeted. And and, and really, honestly, I'm, I'm okay with it. I would rather he wasn't getting picked on so much, but that was almost seemingly by design. It felt like they were baiting him to that side. And maybe it's because Kevin King is just a a pretty decent... I I know some people hate his tackling, and I get that, but most of the time, especially behind the line of scrimmage stuff, when a guy's just a sitting duck, he comes in and just nails people. And it almost feels like they're using that as a weapon. Like, we want you to throw quick wide receiver screens so Kevin King can just nail people. I'm not a big fan of it because we give up about seven yards, and I'm especially not a fan of it on third and one. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Again, other than, as I said yesterday, it feels like Pettin is just gifting them a first down. Basically saying, look, you won. If you get to third and one, you won. We're going to give it to you. We're going to try again next time. Because what, we, what we're what we fishing for here is to get a, a third and long. And it does feel like that's the plan, right? If you're starting on your 25-yard line, let's just say, although that never happened, if we give up roughly four-ish, five-ish yards of play, 
you have to run a lot of plays to get all the way down the field. Eventually, we're going to get you on a third and long, and then you're done. Eventually, that's going to happen. The only thing we can't do is give up the 20, 30-yard plays. But if we keep everything in front of us, eventually, you're going to have a bad pass. We're going to have a real good play, a good pass breakup, an interception, a sack, something, so that you're not going to be in third and two. And that has been working. And again, it just it does feel very much like on third and one, they're saying, all right, you got us. Go ahead. Let's start again. I want third and long. We can't get in third and long from this situation, so we're conceding this first down. Sounds silly, but there's no other way to understand a three-man line and playing off coverage on third and one. I don't know how to, how to, how to break that down in my head other than to say, you go ahead and take the first down. The only thing we're not going to let you do is run a play action and kill us down the field because sometimes you want to take a shot because everyone's crashing down on the line. We're not playing that game. Go ahead and get your first down. I mean, hey, if Kenny wants to make a big play in the backfield, great, but we're clearly not selling out for that. Next highest graded guy, Chandon Sullivan. Um, His run defense tackling wasn't great, but his uh, coverage was a 78 overall grade. He did have five tackles in the game, but also had a miss. He was targeted five times. Four of them were caught, but for only 15 yards. Uh, 3.8 yards per reception is nothing. Longest reception was seven yards. No touchdowns, no interceptions, but one pass breakup we saw. It could have been a pick easily. Didn't make a big difference either way, although it looks nicer on the stat sheet. Probably could have got us a couple extra yards. But 79.2 overall pass rating when targeted. Number four, Christian Kirksey. Uh, real good game for him. He hasn't... Let me take a look. How many good games has he had on the season? Two. Week 16 and 17. I'm not mad at that. In fact, all of his games that are 60 or, and above, uh, week 10, 11, 13, 15, 16, and 17. Huh. I know what I need to do. Take a look at what his grades have been since week 10. <laughs> That's what I need to do. Granted, weeks 14 and 12 were garbage, but uh, it's worth looking at. And yes, I'm, I'm being selective by saying week 10, but he's at, he, when, he, when he doesn't play average, his grades are literally in the 20s. If I go back to even 9, it's not going to grade out very well. So I'm just let's just do 10. And he's got a couple horrible games mixed in, but I'm, I'm guessing he's going to average out at least somewhat decently. No, he doesn't. Yikes. 114th tied with Chris Barn. Those bad games are just so unbelievably bad. Best I can do is say in the last three weeks, he's the 20th graded linebacker in football. I can live with three weeks. Or if you're okay with the super small sample size, he's the 16th highest graded linebacker the last two weeks. It's not a bad thing. I mean, if you compare that to how he started the season, like literally the worst linebacker in football, I'm good with top, you know, starting linebacker quality. If he's a starting linebacker, I'm good with it. And again, it's like I said, when we started the season... Every single week, our lowest graded players on defense were linebackers, and like all of them. It was a pile of four linebackers at the bottom. We're now at a point where the linebackers, it's a different one every week. Sometimes it's Chris Barnes, sometimes it's Kamal, sometimes it's Kirksey. I don't think it's ever been Ty Summers, but they're being used and utilized in a way that optimizes what they're doing. They're starting to play better, and it's showing on the field. It's showing via PFF, um, and it's just another thing that's trending in the right direction at the right time. But uh, Christian Kirksey obviously had the one sack on the game. He had two pressure attempts. One of them got home. Uh, four tackles, two assists, one missed tackle. He was only targeted once. It was caught for four yards. 83.3 passer rating when targeted. Number three, highest graded player. And we jumped from a 76 overall grade from Christian Kirksey all the way up to a 90.0 by Jair Alexander. There were three guys that played out of the stratosphere, starting with the lowest elite player, Jair Alexander. Basically graded out fairly well in just about every single category. He had two tackles, zero missed tackles. One of those two tackles was a stop, which is a negative play for the offense. 
He also had one forced fumble on the game. He was targeted five times, three receptions for only seven yards, which is a 2.3-yard average. Longest reception was six yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions, one pass breakup. 64.6 passer rating when targeted. Um, Next up, second highest graded player, Rashawn Gary. His pass rush grade, again, was not great. Let's, Let's pause and talk about that right now. Mitch Trubisky got the ball out of his hands. I want to say, I don't want to look it up. Did I put it in my notes? Of course not. Like two point, I don't know, 2.1 seconds on average in this game. The point is different games have different game plans, different benefits, different different detractions, whatever. Trubisky and this offense, they run the ball, they get the ball out quickly. Now, there are certain things you can do defensively, but getting your pass rushers to put Trubisky on the ground is really just not one of them. I think he had 11 total passing attempts in which the ball was in his hand for 2.5 seconds or more. One of those times he went on his back. The rest of the game, the ball came out in less than 2.5 seconds. So again, there are certain things you can do defensively. Obviously, you're you're eliminating your ability to, to get big plays. You have to drive further down the field, which means you're giving yourself more opportunities to mess something up, to get yourself in a third and long. And ultimately, Mike Pettin said, okay, if you want to play that game, we'll play that game. But but it's you can't just look at this like any other game and say these these pressure percentages are garbage because the full context is they weren't able to get pressures on a quarterback that got the ball out of his hands in two seconds bottom line is nobody does the little shot clock in your brain is at about 2.5 seconds you can expect to start seeing pressure at three seconds you better start running if you're still in the pocket three seconds later even if you don't know somebody's there just run right two seconds though i mean unless you're coming in free you're probably, I mean, you might start seeing guys get closing in on you, right? Somebody's getting a little bit of push, but actually wrapping you up and bringing you down when there's a blocker on you, you got to just have a great pass rush. You just got to beat the guy. You're not going to bull rush your tackle into a quarterback and bring him down in two seconds. It's just not going to happen. Snap. One, two, balls out. Who in the world is getting to the quarterback like that? So again, that's the full context. So he didn't grade out well as a pass rusher. Only had the one pressure on 17 attempts, but had a 90.2 overall grade as a run defender. As I mentioned, this is the second week in a row he's graded out very well. Um, Last week against Tennessee, 90.7 overall grade. He had an 83.5 run defending grade, so this week was actually a lot higher. Um, His tackling grade has been great all year. That is one probably unsung thing that I've never mentioned, that I've never noted. He's had one game in which he had a poor tackling grade. He is a fantastic, if he gets his hands on you, you're going down. But again, back-to-back elite grades, all of which foundationally are his run defense prowess. So I mean, you can understand. But again, even his stats, I was going to say you could understand why if it's a passing team, maybe you don't see him quite as much, but I'd like to see like him and Snacks out there more in running situations. But again, he his stats are better, even if his grades aren't great, which, I mean, they're as good as Preston's are. You can't argue with the numbers. 39 pressures on 299 attempts. Even on a pretty rough year, that's 13%. That's pretty solid. And again, recent history, what did I say, the last eight weeks, 16%? I don't know. Talking in circles here. But again, the, the biggest thing for me is, is he going to be the same guy for the next three weeks? I, I'm, I'm not including next week. Can he keep this up? Did he take a Darnell Savage turn? Because the last time we saw back-to-back games, Jacksonville, 70, basically an 80 overall grade, Indy an 80 overall grade, and then the next several weeks, 45, 58, 57, 49. He completely just fell off. Now, again, he had some decent stats mixed in there. He had five pressures against Philly, three sacks. He had a sack against Detroit. But on a snap-to-snap basis, PFF is looking at him saying, eh. So that's, that's, I want this to be the defining moment. I want this to be the point of no return. And he's never had games like this. 
His highest graded game going back to 2019 was an 84.5. He just had back-to-back 90s. So I really, really, really hope that it stays. And I'm not, it, it's, it's not going to be every week. Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, David Bakhtiari, they're not every week. I'm just talking about consistently, this is just who he is. I'm talking about going forward, we're talking about a top 10 pass rusher in the league. I want him to be consistently good, not consistently bad. I, don't, I want it to be a flukish bad game instead of a flukish good game. But uh, on top of that one hurry in the game, he did have four tackles, two assists, zero missed tackles, because again, he don't miss. He had four stops, so all four of his tackles were negative plays for the offense. Um, he never got dropped into coverage because they don't do that, which, by the way, is another attribute here. I think Preston Smith opens up the playbook for Mike Patton. And I know we don't like that he drops into coverage, but the fact that he has that dynamic means we can do more. He can call more plays that he likes when he's able to drop Preston. Rashawn is never going to drop. Zadarius is never going to drop. I shouldn't say never. He dropped once in this game, but, I mean, that's he probably doubled his total for the year. These guys just go. They don't drop. Preston drops. That's the allure of Preston Smith. That's a big part of the reason. On top of knowing things, he's a more versatile player. He's not good when he drops, but the fact that he dropped means we're, we're doing different things. Um, anyways, finally, and I'm way over time. Oh, my goodness, I didn't even look at the clock. Adrian Amos, 94.4 overall grade. Amos now is graded out as an elite safety in two out of the last three weeks. Um, he has had uh, good coverage grades in four of his last five games. But this week, 75 snaps, 46 in coverage. He had seven tackles, three assists, zero missed tackles, which is fantastic. Another great tackler, not quite as consistent as Rashawn. He does have some bad days, but very, I mean, as we've seen, he's pretty solid. Um, One stop, which, I mean, it's a different thing when a defensive tackle gets a stop and a safety gets a stop. The safeties play way off. It's, It's less likely for them to get a stop when they get a tackle. Defensive tackles, when they tackle somebody, you almost assume it's a stop because you should be getting them around the line of scrimmage. Um... In this game, five targets, three receptions for 29 yards. Longest reception was 14 yards, zero touchdowns, one interception, zero pass breakups, 36.7 passer rating when targeted. That is the lowest he's had all season with the exception of uh, week one when there was a zero passer rating because he wasn't targeted at all. But to be targeted five times and to get a 36.7 passer rating, fantastic. On the season, he's given up two touchdowns, has two interceptions, and seven pass breakups. Again, he is a top safety in the NFL right now, number one in the NFL, number two overall in the NFL, number one on the second half of the season, along with Darnell Savage is the number two the second half of the season. So every reason in the world to be excited. Again, as I keep saying, and I'm going to keep prefacing it because, again, I don't want the hate mail if and when the Packers get knocked out of the playoffs, which can happen. But, um, I mean, special team. We, we may not see this level of talent for another 20 years in our lifetime. I honestly don't know if we've seen a team this good since the 90s Packers team. 2010 was special, no question. Uh, you know, 2014 was a very good football team. But the level of play, the, 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 um, the level of dominance on offense and defense, and the fact that they're, the, the trends, the linebacking trend, the safety trend, uh, the, the question mark about Rashawn Gary, is that a trend? On top of guys that have been dominant all year, you know, Lindsley and Rodgers and Devonta, you know the list. It's, um, I mean, if, if, if you're another team in the playoffs, I, I think the, in the NFC, I think the Packers are probably the scariest team. In the AFC, it might be the Buffalo Bills because they have a somewhat similar trend, but I don't think it's quite as impressive. They do have some scary attributes. And if, every team is scary for their own reasons, but when you look at scary plus trend, I think Packers-Bills is are the two teams that you need to keep your eyes on. And I'll, I'll further clarify that and look at that, um, you know, wrapping up certain things, really analyzing the playoff teams. 
But um, anyways, I got to go. You folks have yourselves a fantastic Tuesday. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.